Um, yeah, we we're just asking. So uh, we're going to leave the windows open here today, in part to test uh, what the what the the plain noise is like during music and when I'm preaching. So um, yeah, go ahead and leave the door open. And we. Will you just check on the computer and see if the sound is coming through all right with the headphones there? It's, it should be up there. It might need to be refreshed. And Olivia, will you uh, double check that that's still on up there? I'm going to send an email soon. Well, let's do the uh, our, our confession and assurance first, and then I'll I'll do this. This is Psalm from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Let's pray. O Lord, you have given us life. You've made us and you have promised to never leave us. You have also directed us, and given us instructions on how to live life, how to love one another and to love you. This is your law. It is good. And Lord, we oftentimes don't delight in it. We feel as though another law would be better, more suited. Father, will you shape and and soften our hearts in such a way that we would delight more in your law, in your commandments. That we would see them not as restrictions to our enjoyment, but recipes for true fulfillment and joy. The greatest pleasures springing from following your commandments. And Lord, will you forgive us for the ways that we view your words and your commandments in some other way? Lord, hear our prayers. Now, if you have uh, have these words in front of you, they're from Psalm 103. I want us to all read these words together, worthy of memorizing if, you, uh, if you've not before. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now let me say these words as a prayer for our, my, my preaching. 
Also from Psalm 19 that we read from earlier, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. If you are in Christ, God has not dealt with you as our sins would deserve, but has removed as far as the east is from the west all of our guilt from our sins. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's see. Before we start, I'm just going to... A little buzz here. Uh, got that taken care of. Jonathan, I just turned off the speaker over here. Will you turn it back on when you're ready to, uh, to, to play again? Uh, yeah, so we're leaving the doors open. Feel free to. I know it was, it's a little distracting in here, but... I, I, oh, there were people out there? Gotcha. Um, are they gone? Well, well, we'll be careful of that. Please do show them for that. Uh, I alluded to this in, in the email, and we'll send an email soon. Uh, next week, the plan is to gather together for, uh, for worship in our backyard. Now, there are a lot of things that I spell out in the email. I won't go into all of those, but we're going to follow the, 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 the government guidelines, both from state and federal, for um, for exercising caution and, and, and care, and so you'll see that. But, um, and so part of leaving the door open right now is to see how the, the noise from the planes, if you know our backyard, we're going to have a few planes, affects things. The traffic is down, so it won't be as bad, but it'll still affect things. We chose that in part, in large part, because it's, it's going to be away from um, distractions, car traffic, whatnot, that we might find in other outdoor places, also because outdoors seems to be uh, a place where the virus is not likely to transmit as, as actively. But I don't want to stay in our backyard for too long, and that's, that's in part because uh, backyards are kind of difficult places for anybody but us, the McBride family, to invite other people into. And as a church right now, as we look to reopen, we're not looking to reopen just to exercise our right, our First Amendment right for freedom of religion and freedom of assembly and gathering. It's an important right that I would defend to the death uh, in, uh, constitutionally because it is at the heart of why we can uh, worship Christ in, in, with such freedom and, uh, and, and it's been uh, such a blessing to us as a nation and, and the, Christian, um, the Christian church as a whole. But we're gathering together in large part because we need one another. Uh, it, we need to have a sense of community. And, uh, and there are going to be some of you who are, are not going to feel comfortable gathering back together yet. And, and I want you to feel absolutely no pressure. To, to come back into the, the fellowship before you're ready. But, but part of the reason is that, that we're, we're built, we're hardwired for community. And uh, you see expressions in various segments of the population uh, where, where this expression is bleeding out, tired of the isolation. It's not just tired of the isolation. We can't handle the isolation for, for very long. But going back to the point about uh, wanting our backyard not being a place where most of you can, we want to open things back up and begin meeting again so that the message of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, might be even more acceptable to people 
in and around us. And I don't know if you've interacted with other people who uh, are uh, your friends, close relations or friends during the pandemic, but I want to challenge all of us to think really um, intentionally about who has contacted us during this or what contact have we had with other people and how they might be uh, considering the questions of where is God during this? How would God want people to respond to this? What's the call for the government to respond, for, uh, for individuals to respond, for the church to respond? What's the necessity of the gospel? How is the gospel that much more real when we face times of difficulty? And in times of suffering and difficulty is when all of us are made more aware of our own inabilities to, to truly uh, save ourselves, to save others. We are, are run up against the limitations of our um, healthcare systems, ultimately, to save lives. We can save a lot of lives, but we run up against those limitations. And so as we move to this, I don't want us to just go to the backyard because I think, you know, it sort of feels more comfortable and it's, it's safe. Now, it is, in some senses, going to be free from some of the distractions, so that's a helpful place to start. But I think we need to be thinking about how we move out, not for our sake, but for the sake of those who might be exploring Christianity. Can we be, how can we be a church on mission during this time? Not a church that looks like even has the appearance of just demanding its rights to get together, but a church that is exercising freedoms for the sake of our neighbors, loving our neighbors. Those who may not feel like it's the right time to gather together again, who are believers, those who are not believers and are questioning what the uh, uh, relevance of the church is. You know, California seemed to put churches alongside of entertainment industry when they were rolling out their plans. Now, that, that, that should trouble us as a church, that politicians in general in the state of California seem to view churches as equivalent to entertainment industry. The church is at the heart of who we are as a people, equipping us with truths about the God who made us, the God who knows us, what makes us tick emotionally, psychologically, And apart from these answers, the direction that all of us would take, the answers that God provides, the direction all of us would take would be uh, um, uh, detrimental to to us individually and us as a a culture. So that's all I'm going to say about that right now. I just want us to be thinking along those lines and and moving toward that. If it becomes anything else, uh, I I think we need to question, you know, what what we're doing and, and why we're doing it and what we should be doing. So, with that, uh, let's look again at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Now, if you were with us last week, you recognize that this is the same passage we looked at last week. Last week, we also read um, 1 through 11, which is that great hymn or poem about uh, who Christ is, uh, who emptied himself, who, who, didn't, uh, who, who set aside for a time the, the, the riches of his glory, uh, not set aside any of his power, but choosing not to use it for a time, uh, humbling himself, considering the needs of others more important than his own, so that 
we could be uh, counted co-heirs with him, uh, saved uh, by him. And then, and then Paul turns the mirror on to each of us to consider what the implications of this great truth, the truth of the gospel, are for us living out our lives. And it's, a, it's such a rich passage that we, we barely were able to, to touch on everything. Let me go ahead and read it, and then we'll, we'll look at it again, uh, two, two particular parts of it again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. O Lord, will you uh, indeed direct our hearts, my words, that they would be according to your word and your spirit, and that you would shape us by the power of the gospel at work in your people, in your church, in your creation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday we sat and watched the liftoff of the new rocket astronauts into space for the first time in nine years from American soil. It's fascinating to watch that private industry would partner uh, for the first time, I believe, internationally uh, with a governmental institution to agency to, to put uh, astronauts into space. It's fascinating juxtaposition against the various events of the f past few days, uh, primarily in response to uh, the officer uh, killing a man in Minnesota. The uh, appearances of which are that that officer uh, certainly is at fault and uh, guilty of some form of murder or manslaughter. Now, even in our own city, or in the neighboring city of La Mesa, there, is, uh, there are riots that have engulfed at least two buildings, and uh, may even be continuing now. The triumph of humanity, on the one hand, and the expression of the brokenness and fallenness of our world, this creation, on the other hand. They're sobering reminders not that one is set against the other, but that God is, is concerned for both. That each of those things in our lives should, should call us to remember that our triumphs 
never simply drown out or, or, or fade away our struggles. Culturally, we should be careful to remember with eyes of compassion that, that we are not the good guys when other people are bad guys. The truth of the Scripture, the truth that God brings into our lives is that each of us has a deceitful, sinful heart. Each of us is capable of great injustice. Each of us is capable of great violence. Each of us is capable of speaking words that are venomous, very harmful to others around us, to a hardness of heart. When Jesus looked out on the crowds, it says he had compassion on them because they were less sheep without a shepherd. The direction that's given here is that we should be following Christ in all of our life, obeying him in everything, without grumbling, without questioning. And we looked at last week how that it springs up from uh, the language of the Exodus, the story of God rescuing a people, uh, his people out of Israel, out of Egypt, slavery in Egypt, and, and bringing them to the promised land that he had, he had uh, spoken of. And, and yet they're grumbling and they're questioning in the wilderness as they were on their way. They're longing to return to slavery. Even the language, I forgot to mention this last week, <coughs> I think, even the language of the twisted and crooked generation is language that is referring not to the Egyptians, but to the Israelites themselves, their generation that lived in the wilderness. The people that God had delivered, the people who were supposedly following God, they were the ones who were the twisted and crooked generation. Again, to use the same illustration of the mirror, it's a reminder to turn the mirror toward ourselves and to consider how deceitful our own hearts are and how prejudiced our own hearts are. When we consider issues of race and racism or other forms of prejudice in our society, as Christians, we're called first not to critique all the other racists out there, but first to consider what forms of prejudice do we have in our own heart? All of us have them. One of the most interesting phenomenon of, of the, uh, the, the last week is, is the accusations that have been leveled at the uh, Asian American who was one of the police officers who was on that scene in Minneapolis. And I've heard some people express surprised that even he wouldn't step in to intercede. And I don't think there should be any surprise that each of us, each of us carries with us a form of racism that is shaped by many experiences in our own lives. Before I was a pastor, I traveled a lot internationally. And I can't tell you of any place that I found where racism or some form of uh, ethnocentrism 
wasn't practiced. Some of the time I had to be in a place for a while before it really came out, especially those places that are really friendly to tourists. But I found after a couple of weeks, in most places, you could see it. And it also, as I was there, revealed in my own heart some of those uh, prejudices and biases that I uh, have grown up with and that I continue to, uh, to practice and that I repent of regularly. And I think as we look on, on these types of situations, these types of scenes, as believers, our first call is to consider the condition of our own heart and the call for us own, uh, each of us to enter into places of repentance, to exercise patience with others, to be careful especially of being guilty of participating in mob justice by joining in even on social media. I know we're all on social media probably far more than we ever have been. But be careful with our comments on social media. Are they truly promoting some type of justice or are they are they in, inciting even more mass uh, violence and, and riots? Some of the time we think we're doing well when we're not really. We want to have an appearance of looking like we're doing good. And we fail to see, are we really doing good? Now, that's interesting because the, uh, the verse 12 opens up with, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We've addressed that, that some of that question of work out your own salvation. It's not the focus of what I want to talk about today. But, but here's, here's a question for us. In anything where we uh, pursue justice, where we pursue mercy, where we show mercy, as we talked about recently, even in exercising various, um, uh, well, in, in practicing mercy and, and justice and serving others, we always have to ask the question, begin with the question, am I doing this for other people or am I doing it primarily for me? See, at the heart of a lot, a lot of mercy ministries, is really a self-centered, egotistical desire to make ourselves feel good for having done something for somebody else without asking this important question, is what I'm doing for this other person truly helping the other person? Is what I'm doing truly helping the other person? Or am I, in some form, enabling the other person? Or am I building up my own self, uh, self-worth self by meeting uh, uh, some, uh, some need that, uh, that, that, that I have uh, more than, than somebody else. Paul says, challenges us, as, I, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. He's asking us, what is at the heart of your motive as Christians? What motivates us? There are places that, uh, that this symptomatically, this, this kind of bleeds out symptomatically in our work. When we're working, are we, are we doing it primarily and, and much harder when somebody's watching than when they're not? Are we paying eye service to other people? In our personal life, are we acting ethically? Are we on better behavior when somebody comes over for dinner Do we treat our family better than when we're at home by ourselves? 
in our own personal life individually? Do I uh, practice certain spiritual disciplines or, or, am I, or, or, or do other things when somebody might be watching in more than, uh, more than when I'm alone in, in a private place? It's fascinating watching the, the launch yesterday and just thinking about how many of those, those rooms with all the, the desks and the display panels and dozens of people working, you know, what those rooms look like when they're not all on camera. You know, are, are the people working? Actually, they don't really look like they're working that hard because they're just monitoring things to see if they go wrong, right? But they are working critically hard uh, in, in watching for those things to, to go wrong. And, uh, and, and that's helpful even for us as Christians too. Sometimes we're just called to work hard all the time. And, and, uh, and, and oftentimes that level of work is just not sustainable. We can't go 100% all the time uh, in, in our work or in our, our personal life. We need rest. We also need to be um, able to work. Uh, good, good story, helpful story on that. It's just, you know, um, uh, I w- went in to work a temp job for a few weeks during the summer in a manufacturing facility in Michigan that made doors. And I came in eager to show how hard I was working and everything else. Uh, and so I was, I was running all over the place and eventually somebody, you know, kind of s- s- said, look, if, if you do that for these few weeks that you're working, you're going to make life impossible for the rest of us who have to come in for the next few months and years to continue to do this work. It was an unsustainable pace, except for somebody who just came in, who usually sits behind a desk and had been at school doing mostly schoolwork for the last uh, few months. That's helpful. Are we paying eye service? It's symptomatic. It's, it, it, it's symptomatically, it reveals something about our heart. And it also helps us to look at two other things that I want to I consider here today. And the first is, what does it mean that we are to shine like lights? And the second is, what does it mean to obey? Obey in all things uh, without grumbling. Particularly, particularly when those in authority aren't doing their job very well, or even worse, are abusive. And what does the scripture tell us about that? So first, shining as lights. And I just uh, remembered I don't have a clock up here, so I'm just going to make sure I have an eye, eye on the time here. Shining as lights. What does it mean that we would shine as lights? This is uh, uh, straight, um, the language straight from uh, from this, this passage, I'm in verse 15. Uh, let me just read it. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, first, remember what I said about twisted, crooked generation. Not necessarily referring to those outside the church or outside the people of Israel. A lot of times we read this passage, we think, oh, all those heathens outside the church and doing all those things, those are the people who need to have the light shine to them. But actually, the language of this is pointing as those who are true believers within the body, the church, the true Israel, the Israel of God, shining as lights to those who would identify themselves with the church but aren't truly in the church. Jesus warns about this multiple times. He says, you know, beware. You know, those who say, I, I did all this stuff for you. I, I, you know, I, I, was, I was in, I was in. And he says, I never, I never knew you. 
We're called to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, it's not an either or here. It's a both and. And surely we're called to shine as lights to those outside the church, but also to those inside the church. And it's helpful to understand the word. So what does this mean? Well, first, we need to understand the word light. This word we tend to think of as, well, it's daylight. We're in the daylight. But, but the word in the Greek here is, is actually pointing more to, uh, and maybe better translated as a luminary. That is light that's shining in darkness. Particularly referring to the moon and the stars that shine when it's dark outside. Some other form of light, a torch in that time or a flashlight in this time, piercing into the darkness. And so what Paul is saying, that in the midst of darkness, you, we, are called to shine as lights. When darkness is surrounding us, the call is for us to be luminaries to the world around us. In such a time as this, as we're experiencing right now, both with the pandemic and the, the, the darkness in general that's surrounding us with the, the fear and anxieties around that, the very real risk of death in certain uh, cases, and now also the, uh, the, 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 the hostilities and the violence that have erupted, we're called to shine as lights in the world. How can we shine as lights in darkness? And the answer to that is by following the commandments of God. By obeying, by obedience, even even when no one or we think no one is watching. By obedience that comes from a heart that desires to do God's will, that doesn't just do it because we feel like it's something we should do. Or something even worse that we have to do. That's why I read the passage from Psalm 19 earlier. That our desire, our love would be for God's commandments and his law. As a people we naturally run away from the things that make us feel conviction. That make us feel guilty. And yet... When we experience guilt with the assurance of forgiveness, there is an amazing attractiveness to that call. When we experience guilt with the assurance of forgiveness, there is an amazing attractiveness to that call. Because the world around us, in its darkness, tells us you cannot, you can admit no faults. No failings. Be strong and courageous. Don't ever let anybody see any weakness in you. If they do, they will not love you. They will not hire you. They will not listen to you. And surely we need to be careful because entrusting our failings to somebody who's going to use them for selfish gain and for their own purposes is dangerous. But what the call of the gospel tells us, it invites us to come and to confess our guiltiness with an assurance of forgiveness 
that frees us so that we can pursue a righteousness, can live for God, can a, 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 approach God's law and his commandments with a new heart that says, I love these things, instead of saying, these things are out to get me. And I was interesting in listening to all the stories of the uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 um, development of the the rocket and the uh, that that sent the astronauts into space yesterday. It's called the Falcon Nine. It's been developed over the last uh, roughly nine years by the company SpaceX, and they have had a myriad of failures. Rockets blowing up on a couple of occasions at launch, but even more so as they tried to recover the rockets so that they could reuse them to save tremendous costs. And I don't know if you've watched this over the news over the last few years. I have, and, and I was really skeptical. I was really scared yesterday when two astronauts are sitting on top of this rocket, ready to go up, and knowing how many failings SpaceX has had throughout the last few years. Far more nervous than I have with any other launch I have in recent history. But then I started to research this a little bit and why they took the approach they did, why they had so many failings. One of the fascinating things that allowed them to accelerate the program so quickly was that they were willing to experience some significant failures so that they could learn from those failures and build a better rocket. It's the same kind of mentality that enabled the, uh, the movie motion picture company Pixar to explode onto the scene and develop some of the best movies ever made uh, before Disney acquired them, arguably. <laughs> it was a culture that promoted a freedom to, to fail, to step into life, to step into the creative process, so that through their failings, they might experience even more success to learn from those. It enabled SpaceX to develop this rocket faster than any other program like it has ever, ever happened. And significantly more cheaply, from what I understand. It's also the call that we have as Christians to enter into the world and to pursue God's commands and His righteousness and His law with a greater expectation that we would be able to do those things. So that we could enter into it with a hope, because here's, here's what's at the heart of shining as lights. Sometimes as Christians we get to, to the point where we think, oh, the, the thing that makes us different is, is, not, uh, is only that we're forgiven. Because we sin like everybody else. And, and most of us in the church, I think most of the church has kind of adopted this view in recent years. That we're all sinners saved by grace. We're no better than anybody else. And that is true in one sense. That is certainly true when we're called to the gospel. But it should not be true. It should not be true of our lives as we grow into maturity as Christians. Because this truth of our sins being forgiven, paid for completely, assurance of forgiveness over our guilt that is found through Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death and his resurrection that brings us uh, full forgiveness should not as Christians leave us in the same place we were when we were apart from Christ. 
it should and must manifest itself in our growth and maturity and especially in our behavior as Christians because we're no longer motivated to seek our own salvation and to seek our own glory. We're no longer motivated to seek our own salvation and to seek our own glory, seek our own salvation by somehow having our good works outweigh our bad works, having other people think that uh, we're, we're really better than we are, and our glory in trying to convince the world and even more difficultly trying to convince ourselves that we are worthy, that we're worth it, that we mean something. But the truth that the Bible lies, lays out for us is that if we pursue those things in and of ourselves, we will never find, we will never find the salvation, the glory we're looking for. In fact, even worse, we will use other people, abuse other people for, to somehow try to convince ourselves of those things. But here's the, here's the difference of the gospel. The gospel says you're not worthy. You're not able to save yourself. But Christ has saved you. And Christ has made you for a very particular purpose. An important, vital purpose in his kingdom, in his economy, in his church. And that is worthy a far more glory than any other glory that you might seek. How do we know if we're seeking our own glory? I didn't watch the, the, the whole thing. Michael Jordan was the, 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 he was the, 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 the greatest of all time. He was the, the star when I was growing up and in college. If you're not convinced he's the greatest of all time, watch a video out there. Compares him and LeBron James recently. It's about half hour long. It is compelling. He was the greatest of all time. I've not seen the recent documentary. We don't have cable. Uh, the Last Dance. But I've read a lot of stories surrounding it. Of his relationship with his former teammates. And how he motivated his team toward glory and winning the championships. And I have to say, I can't stand as judge and jury over this, but I, can't, I have to say, by all the information I've seen, Michael Jordan is guilty of having used and abused those around him for the sake of gaining the glory of his team at the expense of his own well-being and certainly his relationships with those who were on the team with him and others around him. How can we tell if we're seeking our own glory? Even as Christians, are we walking in darkness or are we uh, lights around us? Look at the people around you. When they leave your presence, are they better off or have they been sucked dry? It's a difficult question to ask because I think all of us experience some level of or exercise some level of manipulation of others to get our own, our, our own desires. All of us are afraid that God won't somehow provide for us and we, we hedge and we protect and we, we guard. 
And it gets at this question of authority and even abuse of authority that Paul is getting at here, but he really doesn't bring out the full counsel of God here. He gives us the helpful direction to obey without grumbling, even when he's gone. But he doesn't lay it out as just a a blanket statement to obey all of those in authority. Actually, he comes closer to it in, in another place in Romans 13 when he says, honor the emperor. Honor those who are in authority over you. Even those, even those who are not necessarily exercising their authority in a, in a healthy way. It comes even more challenging than the passage we've just read. And it begs the question, when do we follow authority and when should we rise up against authority? When should we challenge authority? When should we do these other things? And we can't go into all of the detail today. But again, we need to understand the full counsel of God, that is his full word, his full authority, to see that first Paul is calling us in this passage to follow his teaching, which has been proven throughout the church to be the correct teaching, whereas many other teachers that he even speaks of earlier in Philippians are teaching either from false motives or even worse, teaching false doctrine altogether. And so when he says to obey, even in his absence, he's not calling us just to obey all people who are in authority. He's calling us to obey and follow Christ. Jesus brings this point up in a story uh, that's told in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, where after his Sermon on the Mount, he's engaging with different people in a centurion, a Roman centurion, that is an officer in the Roman army who's in charge of 100 soldiers, comes up to him uh, requesting help for somebody who's sick uh, around him. Jesus has this interesting exchange with him that ends with, uh, that, that kind of culminates with the centurion saying, you know, you don't even have to come with me. You just say the word. I know what it is to have authority and to be under authority and to have those who are under my authority. And I understand that if you just say the word, it will happen. In other words, this Roman centurion was recognizing that Jesus was something greater than any physician around or even a miracle worker. Jesus was God himself. Jesus was God himself. He had the ultimate authority. He has the ultimate authority. And so the call that Paul is first giving us here is to follow Jesus without any other consideration. Search out his scriptures. Follow teaching. Don't consider any other teaching superior to that of the teaching of God in his Bible. And if your teachers are teaching something other than what God is teaching, leave them, flee from them. They are leading you astray. They are not to be in authority over you. Great story in Acts chapter 17 is of uh, the gospel coming to the city of Berea. And the Bereans are knowledgeable about the Old Testament. And when they hear the preaching that Paul is bringing them, they go and search out the scriptures. That is the Old Testament at the time to see if what he's teaching them is consistent with what's in the word. We should all be Bereans constantly searching out the scripture for our authority. But Romans 13 also presses us into a more uh, a, a, a broader authority. And it's the reason why we when when the authorities said don't meet for a time uh, in churches, 
We as churches, by and large, said, yes, God has put these people, even if they're not believers, in these positions of authority to uh, protect us and guard us. And so we, we uh, at least us as a church, and most churches, recognize this biblical authority that God, that, that Governor Newsom is still a man under the authority of Christ, and yet we follow him. And yet at the same time, we also recognize that when when he is going against God's word, there are times, and it's appropriate for us as Christians to challenge him, to defend even this system of governments that's been developed in, that we live under in the United States that cherishes the freedom for people to gather together and the freedom especially to teach, uh, teach religion that's not coerced by the state. Because when the state gets involved in teaching religion, it always, it always goes south. And so we are defending these certain things and exercising civil rights in that, in that form, in the form of uh, lawsuits or even, even protests. It's why I would defend also uh, biblically the right to protest and to gather together uh, to exercise a, a disagreement uh, within within certain things, uh, the violence is is not to be justified, but it it is appropriate that we should have the freedom to to do that. And biblically speaking, biblically speaking, when those who are in authority over us exercise abuse, we are called through the means of of good process of healthy process to challenge that authority sometimes even to flee from that authority, as Joseph did with Potiphar's wife and fleeing from a circumstance that he knew was abusive and that would lead him to a place of, 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 uh, of error and not following God himself and his commandments and everything else. Many examples throughout scripture of uh, exercising resistance to authority. So when we say we obey without grumbling, we obey God's word without grumbling and without questioning. And yet we seek out his word so that we can understand it all the more, as the Bereans did. In that following Christ with our whole heart, with our motives and our actions, with a life that's transformed so that we are acting differently than others around us, we will effectively shine as lights around us. That is the call that Jesus is leading us into as his followers that stems from this reality that he gave up his life for us, that he considered the needs of others more important than his own, that he ultimately has died for our salvation and he also now is ruling as complete king with complete authority over every institution and every authority that exists in the world. And we can only do this because of the security that Jesus gives us, the security and the freedom from having to pursue our own salvation and our own glory. What are your glory projects? Where are you seeking glory? Following Jesus with everything doesn't mean you can't pursue your own interests and things that excite you and, uh, and uh, various accomplishments and career objectives and athletic objectives and everything. Those are great. But ask the question, are you doing those things for your own glory or for God's glory? 
Are you in those things motivating and equipping others to develop their skills and their abilities and to move them into greater positions of influence and, uh, and authority, serve in authority? These are some tough questions. I know we're wrestling with some tough things in this. I skipped over this in part because I think these are the toughest verses in all Philippians to really teach on. We spent a couple of weeks here just to kind of let it marinate a little bit more with us because I think they're some of the most important verses in all Philippians as well. Let's call it quits there. This is a good place to stop. We uh, have a little bit more with Philippians uh, in the next couple of weeks just to close it out. Uh, But let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the ways that you have provided for us today and that you lead and guide us, that you have freed us from having to feel like we have to pursue our own glory and even more so our own salvation. Will you give us uh, motivation, energy to enter into life pursuing your glory, pursuing your goodness and uh, seeking to live um, and follow your commands in all of our life. May we see those as good and pleasing things. Lord, we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.